Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover Down the Mississippi River. This week, we're traveling along one of the nation's most iconic and important rivers, the Mississippi. Yesterday, we heard from you about how the history and the culture of the river is influencing American identity. Well, my dad and I, back in 2002, paddled from the headwaters all the way down to St. Louis, Missouri. We developed quite a, a almost spiritual bond with the river just by being on it for so long. There's an, an LDS temple, a Mormon temple, um, rebuilt there, and it overlooks the Mississippi, and it just brings life to a lot of Mormons, I think. I have to say it's so sad because the disconnect of the river also relates to our poverty and to our systematic racism that we have in the city of New Orleans, but also up and down the Mississippi Delta. You could just feel the power. It's like the blood flow of the nation, and I get tearful on this, but I can feel it. It's like every molecule is expanding. You can feel the power of the river underneath you. And that's what you had to say yesterday on our first flyover show about the culture and the history and your connection to the Mississippi River and its delta and its sister rivers. Today, as we get ready to embark for Iowa and then Louisiana, we're talking about who gets to decide how the river is managed. In many towns and cities along the river, there are clashes over levees and diversion plans and dredging and drainage and development. Are we listening to more than just the interests with the loudest voices and the most money? Are government decision makers hearing from enough individuals? So as our guests join us, I want to hear from you today, no matter where you are, along the river, in the watershed, in the delta, if your life intersects somehow with the river. And I'd like you to think about this. If you own a marina, you run a family farm, you live and play on a river that connects you to the Mississippi, do you feel like the decision-making about the river is fair? Have you been affected, either positively or negatively, by a decision that has been made about the flow and the future of the river? So talk to me today about how you connect with the river, you run a farm that leads into the river, you use the water from the river, you own a marina, you live and play on this river. Do you feel like the decision-making about the future and the flow of the Mississippi River and the tributary rivers are fair? I mean, do you have you been affected individually by a decision? You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, and use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Our guest today, Roger Wolf, is the Director of Environmental Programs and Services for the Iowa Soybean Association. He's in the studios of Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. And Roger, it's good to talk to you again. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, it's great to be here, Carrie. Uh, it's great to be here on the campus, Iowa State University uh, here in Iowa. Carrie Jennings is with us, Research and Policy Director at the Freshwater Society in St. Paul. And welcome, Carrie. Good to have you in the studio. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. When we see words like tame and control, often terms that are used when we think about the future of the river and the flow of the river, are we... Are we taking into account that in some ways this is what it means to live with a body of water like the Mississippi River, that we're constantly trying to somehow control the way and how that river flows? This is an interesting question because it's a bit of hubris to think that you can tame and control <laughs> a, a river that splits the continent. Um, the best we can do is learn to live within its 
its extent within its boundaries and maybe control a little bit of how we're altering the river. You say that, and yet you can go all the way up and down the river and see all of the places where, I guess what you'd call hubris is in effect, and we've put levees up, and we've created drainage places, and we've, we're talking about diversion places. Have we, I mean, I, I guess what have we learned about all the infrastructure that we're putting into place to try to control where this mighty river goes? I think we are starting to learn that we can look at the symptoms on the main river and try to understand where in the landscape those symptoms originate. Just like you're diagnosing a body by taking a pulse or looking at blood oxygen levels, you can do that, but then you have to look at the whole body, the lifestyle, the diet, to decide what's the best approach, the long-term approach that's going to be sustainable and affordable. Roger, what would you say about that? Uh, Well, I I really do uh, agree with Carrie. Um, If there's one thing that we've learned over many, many, many years, going back uh, hundreds of years, is is that uh, Mother Nature, uh, you know, we go from uh, big events, right, Um, droughts to floods, um, and it's a big system, and uh, communities are impacted by that. I imagine they started out with the idea that we can manage this river, but we know a lot more today than uh, about the river and how it's all interconnected. And part of the challenge is, I think, on a system this big, is coming to grips with uh, governance. Um, and, you know, you're talking about 31 states and how each of those states are unique. The upper river's different than the lower river. Right. And, and so this is an enormous endeavor. And, and the truth about all these issues, whether we're talking uh, flooding or um, water quality or any of the other issues that are impacted in, within the river, is that these are kind of wicked problems that you don't solve. You, you basically attempt to manage and, and adapt. And Carrie, I think she said, you know, we got to learn to live with the river. Mother Nature ultimately wins in this equation. <laughs> uh, I, I And I was thinking about that, and I thought, as you look how interconnected the river culture is, even as what Roger's saying about the northern part of the river is quite different from the middle and the bottom, uh, one person's idea of control is another person's chaos, right? What we do carry at the upper part of the river we now know much more about how that affects the way you experience the river and what happens at the bottom in New Orleans. It's true. I think we as Minnesotans have a special responsibility as the headwater state, and not only for this river, but for the Great Lakes and also for the Red River, where the headwaters of three major watersheds. And it ideally, we would not impact those waters as they fall and then leave our state. Pretty impossible, isn't it's, it, though? It's hard, but it can be It can be an idealistic goal that you keep in mind. Um, I've anecdotally heard of countries in Europe where people have to take the water they drink downstream of their water treatment plants. Uh-huh. That would force you to think about that with every drop you drink. Let me take some calls here to Rick in New Orleans. Hi, hey there. Hey, this is Rick. Look, uh, that when they built the levees on the river back in the 30s, I, I believe it was, they built them all the way down to the end of the of the river, and the silt that the, that the would would have normally 
uh, flood of the plains where the delta is is not it's, it's all going into the Gulf, and the land is not being built up. And they won't take the levees down, you know, within about 30 miles of the mouth of the, of the river, or maybe even more, maybe 50 miles. They should take the levees down so the silt builds up the land. You know, I, and that's my comment. Yeah, Rick, you're, you're raising something that I think we could spend the entire rest of the hour on, just on levees. But, Carrie, this is something that we're learning about when you put a levee in one part of the river— all the effects that that has, upriver and downriver, and yet those levees protect a lot of land from flooding, right? They do, and he's right. They went in um, after the big floods of 1927, and we tend to develop these large infrastructure projects and federal programs in response to disasters, and that levee program is primarily in the lower river, so it's not a part I'm familiar with. In Minnesota, we had levees on the Minnesota River, but a lot of those had been removed to store sediment because our problem is the opposite up here. We have too much sediment in our rivers. I wish we could export it to you in the Delta. (laughs) I really do. Um, Locally, it's filling water bodies on the river and causing problems with navigation. Um, But that's just another effect of this river that we have altered. Um, Ideally, the Corps of Engineers is who is responsible for maintaining the... or enforcing the height of levees that Mm -hmm. people can put up. And ideally, we would have someone here from the Corps to talk about that and their authority and the difficulty of that. And we invited the Corps of Engineers to the show. They were unable to make it. We're hoping they can join us maybe at our town hall in in La Rose, Louisiana. We've got a request in to them. Roger, I take what Carrie says about uh, the reaction after a disaster, right? Decisions that get made. Uh, to protect a community that has suffered from a devastating flood. Do you find that infrastructure and big policy decisions tend to be, you know, I don't want to say knee-jerk, but they tend to swoop in after a community has experienced a disaster, and maybe they're not taking into account enough of the rest, everything else that ought to be included into those decisions. What's your view on that? You know, Kerry referenced um, uh, the large infrastructure that uh, came out in 1927, and and um, you know, there's there's been a lot written uh, over the years about uh, the the history of the river, and disasters have have really dominated the public's attention. And you know, there's an old mantra, um, you know, and I've heard it in government, if you will, uh, that say, "Don't let a disaster go to waste." Um, because it, 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 it does generate the public well and, and people want to pay attention. And, um, you know, New Orleans is, is built below sea level. Roger, the levee let, system, let yeah. me interrupt just there to say you're listening to Flyover. Roger Wolf with us, Carrie Jennings, as we talk about who controls the future and the flow of the Mississippi River. I want to hear from you. You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover Radio down the Mississippi River. We're traveling along the Mississippi. Yesterday, we talked about the culture and the history of the river. Today, 
who controls the flow and the future of the Mississippi River. And as our guests join us, I'd like to hear from you. If you you run a family farm near the river, you own a marina, you live in play on a river that connects you to the Mississippi, do you feel like the decision-making about the river is fair? You've heard us talk about levees. You've heard us talk about sediment. Wherever you are along the Mississippi River, how does the decision-making, the policy-making about the river feel to you? Tweet me at CarrieMPR. Use the hashtag FlyoverRadio. Carrie Jennings with us today from Freshwater and Roger Wolf with us from the Iowa Soybean Association. You were saying, Roger, before we we went to that break about New Orleans and the perception, right, of some of the policy decisions at that end of the river. Please go on. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, New Orleans is built below sea level and that, that uh, levee system is vitally important to protect uh, the residents of New Orleans, but also uh, the tremendous amount of infrastructure that exists uh, near near the uh, the mouth of the river. I mean, the river is used also for navigation. So um, there are big economic implications. And uh, the good news is, I think, is we're getting a little smarter about our disasters. Um, you know, there are communities that are beginning to develop uh, contingency planning, resiliency planning. Um, the folks, uh, and I, I point to Cedar Rapids in particular in Iowa, is that those folks are understanding just what it means to lose uh, a city to uh, their river. And, and so now they're able to deploy uh, uh, plans that first protect people, but also as you begin developing um, you know, building in the floodplain is probably not a good idea with uh, really important infrastructure. And so we know a lot more today and cities and communities can design for that. I, I think easier said, and I know Roger knows this, building in the floodplain isn't a good idea because a lot of communities are already there, Carrie. Mm-hmm. More building, uh, I think, is going on in places that seem pretty vulnerable to flooding. Uh, how do you How do you shape policy around an idea that people, for the most part, get to live where they want to live, even in the face of climate change. Well, I think the primary thing driving where people choose to put their homes is whether or not they can get them insured. Mm -hmm. So it is the lack of insurance that would be a disincentive to building in a floodplain. Um, The problem is that those floodplain boundaries are changing. And if these models are very old, older than even 10 years, they might not be accurately predicting the frequency or magnitude of the floods that we're seeing now. Because we hear about 100, 500-year floods happening much more frequently than that. Right. And it sounds impossible, but that's because we're probably not predicting them very well with the current rainfall patterns. A call here from Tom outside of Mason City, Iowa. Hi, Tom. What's your story and your connection with the river? Uh, Well, I live along the Winnebago River, but uh, basically what I wanted to point out here, especially with your soybean guide on there, Mm -hmm. uh, Iowa now has around uh, 10,000 hog confinements. And the the DNR has said that they think the state can support 45,000. Mm. We have over 750 impaired waterways in the state of Iowa right now. They take the manure. There's more manure produced from these hogs than there is from humans. And they spread it all across the countryside. It winds up in the field tiles. It runs off in these heavy rains that we have, and it winds up into the rivers. 
and it contributes to the dead zone in the Gulf. This monoculture of growing soybeans and corn and hogs is killing our waterways and eventually, you know, what's going to kill our rivers. They need to diversify, start growing something else besides corn and beans, aronia berries, or put some set-aside land on. Voluntary compliance is not working. So We've lived under voluntary compliance. There's only 3%, less than 3% of farmers who are planting cover crops. They're doing anything to help the problem. And their answer is they've overproduced. Okay, Tom, I I think I've got the essence of what you wanted to say here. Uh, Roger, we'll hear more about that tomorrow, I think, too, when we talk about agriculture from Iowa City. But to Tom's point about... Um, what's happening when you allow more and more development of these farms and he's worried about a monoculture that keeps investing in only a couple different crops? Uh, well, I hear uh, those comments all the time. And um, in part, uh, you know, our agriculture system has evolved over time. And and uh so I'm, I'm not going to argue one way or the other in, in terms of which system is right, but we try to um, think about how we can manage the system to be more resilient and sustainable. So uh, that means uh, thinking about our manure management in terms of a, a, as a resource, in terms of, you know, compliance with the regulations. You know, I know that the state has... Uh, thought deeply about this issue. And, and so, you know, he used the word diversity and, and, you know, I, I don't think that's the wrong answer. I think, in fact, we need to add diversity to the landscape. Where can we be productive with corn and soybean production? Where can we integrate livestock systems so they're part of um, the whole natural system? And, and so adding diversity, uh, is, is a good answer. We can buffer these systems. Uh, we can deploy technologies that use the manure wisely. And um, I, I think there is a way to do this, but it requires actions um, to make all this happen. And that's what we're in the business of doing in I, Iowa. I, I think, Carrie, the same issue comes up here with the floodplain planning and the levees and now with agriculture that people who feel like they have a stake in the river do not feel like they have enough of a voice in the planning from your from your point of view do they i mean do legislatures step in a lot on this does the corps of engineers make decisions and and the voice of the individual or the or the interest does not bear as much weight as it should i would say the voice of the individual has a lot of power in minnesota most of the land in these agricultural watersheds is privately held mm-hmm. and so those day-to-day decisions being made by the farmers are their own decisions um but sure, but, the, but they're regulated by decisions that are being made at the at state legislative level, no? No, I I would say it's more controlled by what their profit margin is and you know what what kind of incentive they have to grow those crops in the first place. I think um the state and the federal government do not have a role in those private individuals' decisions. Those are um, not part of the Clean Water Act's purview. That's qualified as non-point source pollution, anything that comes off of an agricultural field, and that was not considered in the Clean Water Act. There is no regulatory authority over that. And so that's actually the challenge of the state right now. We have 
adequate money because of a constitutional amendment to address some of these water quality issues. The problem is without any kind of regulatory authority over those private landowners' decisions, how do we incentivize them to make decisions that are profitable but also good for water quality? Let's go back to the phones here to Laura in Des Moines. Hi, Laura. Hey, thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you. And thank you so much for doing this uh, this whole show this week. I really appreciate it. Glad you're listening. I think it's much needed. <laughs> so here in Des Moines, we have two rivers converging, mm-hmm. um, the Raccoon and the Des Moines River. And certainly, um, as the last caller stated, and as our soybean guy knows, um, we have a lot of nutrients um, going down, especially the Raccoon River. And about a year ago, the, the, the local water utility had such a big issue with this and was looking at, um, you know, having to change infrastructure and charge people more because of having to clean out all these nutrients and other things. But they actually tried to sue um, in court three counties north of us because they were seen as being the biggest culprits. It turns out it went to the Supreme Court here in, in the state of Iowa and it didn't go through. But I think it woke people up to a lot of Um, uh, you know, how we are responsible here in Iowa and certainly in in other states um, along the Mississippi in the um, issues down south of us. And I I do want to give a shout out, though, because I understand what the last caller was saying, and I agree. But I do have to say, working with the organization SILT, Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, I've come to find out that actually our soybean folks are a little bit better than some of our corn and, uh, you know, sort of large animal feedlot people. So I do want to give um, your guest a shout out. I know that uh, in particular, the soybean industry is, it seems to be working a little bit harder to help mitigate some of these issues. And as we look forward to the trade issues with China and, and even now soy prices dropping, I do hope that folks will look at diversifying more. I think it helps the economy and it certainly helps our environment. Hey, thanks for the call, Laura. Um, Roger, do you feel like the legal processes that she was talking about and the debate that has gone on in Iowa has created, um, you know, I hear her basically saying more accountability for what it means to be upriver from a lot of the consequences, right, that are being seen downriver and that, as I think we'll talk again tomorrow about, farmers need to be a part of that. So, Carrie, I, I really appreciate this question. I've worked my whole career, it's going on 29 years in the Raccoon River, and I've worked uh, collaboratively with our water utility in Des Moines. It's really important. I drink Des Moines water. I live in Johnston, Iowa, and and um, I recognize the challenges that the city uh, uh, source water folks have. Uh, they have a, a MCL, maximum contaminant level for safe drinking water, that they have to meet each day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have to flip the switch, and it has to meet that standard. Um, one, one of the things that I've been working at is is trying to really engage action up and down the river. Um, and it's a big river system. The, the Raccoon River alone, we're talking about 2.3 million acres. It's uh, predominantly corn and soybean production and, and a very vibrant livestock industry. And, uh, you know, they're at the bottom of this, this uh, watershed with high organic soils that's been hydrologically modified. And what I've been trying to say is that uh, to achieve uh, water that meets that condition is going to require um, significant investment. And I would estimate, um, you know, we're talking r- upwards of $500 million to do that. 
Um, and you, when you say so, investment, you mm-hmm. mean taxpayer investment, yes? Well, uh, it could be taxpayer investment. It's got to come from somewhere. Um, the, these things aren't done for free. And, and so whether it's farmers paying for it, and it's going to be difficult for farmers to pay for these investments. We're talking about uh, significant implementation of technologies up and down the landscape. And, you know, so on one level, we're owning those issues. We need to do that for beyond Des Moines as well for the, for the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. So um, what I've tried to argue is that we ought to be walking together rather than spending time in in uh, the courtroom on these issues. Carrie, do you um, see that happening? Um, it's somewhat in Minnesota. I see um, research dollars being spent at the University of Minnesota to develop alternative cropping systems um, that would cover up the ground in between the planting and the harvest of these annual crops that mm-hmm. aren't up there for very long, but also developing continuous living cover. And ideally, that would be what we'd see on the landscape. It just warmed my heart yesterday to see somebody cutting a second round of alfalfa. You know, I'd like to see more hay on the landscape. That's something every farmer knows how to do. Um, Crops like that might not have the markets right now or the ones being developed might not have this, might not scale up very well right now. And that's a totally appropriate role for the university and the state to do the R&D behind that and then we trust the markets and the producers to be able to take these products and run with them. And the result will be, be good for both of us. You're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi. It's a conversation, a national call-in about uh, how we as Americans identify with this mighty river that basically bisects the continent. Today, we're talking about who should manage the flow and the future of the Mississippi River. And as you hear, this conversation is taking into account the infrastructure along the river to try to control the flooding, but also what the agricultural interests mean. Tomorrow we'll be in Iowa City and we'll dig in even more deeply into the agricultural Uh, impact on the Mississippi River. And I want to hear from you wherever you are along the river, particularly if you're farming near the river. Today, it's do you, however you interact with the river, work, play, you own a marina, you run a family farm, you live and, and love the Mississippi River and its sister rivers, do you think the decisions that get made are just? Do you feel like you have a stake and a say in the future and the flow of the river. And you can uh, tweet me at CarrieMPR and use the hashtag FlyoverRadio. Let me get back to a call here to Jane in St. Paul. Hi, Jane. Appreciate you waiting. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Um, I'm 52, lived most of my life in the Minneapolis Twin Cities area, and really had no relationship with the river until I met someone who lived on a houseboat. Mm. So I woke up this morning on a houseboat in on an island in the middle of the Mississippi, and it is went swimming, and it is staggeringly beautiful, and I'm just shocked at the disconnect between most people who might have lived here their whole lives and the river. Um, I had a seven-minute commute in a fishing boat, and I saw two blue herons and three eagles. <laughs> you are living and, the dream uh, there, Jane, for sure. Living the dream. And he's going to be out there the entire summer. He's, like, living off the grid on this island. And his big beef is that the Army Corps of Engineers, as far as he's concerned, feels like it, they have a dual role of providing navigation on the river, but as well as looking out for pleasure boaters. And I think if more people were out on the river, more people would care about the river. 
And I think the Army Corps of Engineers can do things with the dredging material to create coves and sandbars and opportunities for recreation on the river that doesn't always happen. Um, And for a small example, this morning I was picking up styrofoam, unbelievable amounts of tiny, tiny styrofoam on the banks because the flood brings it all up. And I think the St. Paul City Council just wasn't able to pass uh, re- compostable takeout containers. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. they're still using styrofoam in St. Paul. And I think if people were out there on the river, they would put pressure on city council to do something about it. Jane, so that's my two cents. Really good to have your two cents and your call. I'm going to hear from John in Brookings, South Dakota. John, I've got about two minutes, but I want to hear what you had to say. Hi, thanks for having me. I'll try to be quick. Okay. Um, so, yeah, from Brookings, South Dakota, grew up on the Mississippi River for about 25 years. Um, my biggest thing that I did on the river was uh, recreate, whether that was fishing, hunting, uh, trapping. And the comment I have today is is one of the, the, the biggest pieces of legislation that has impacted me, and I want to say the people around the river where I grew up was, was this recent res- legislation to the Wisconsin gov- or, uh, state that uh, restricted access to the Upper Mississippi River Wildlife Refuge, right. um, siding with uh, the railroads, the, in this case the Burlington Northern Santa Fe line that runs basically from La Crosse all the way down past Prairie du Chien and into Illinois. Um, and they, what that did was is restricted access by charging and prosecuting people for trespassing. And I, and I feel that we didn't get a say on this legislation, the people that lived on the river. Um, we restricted access to a lot of spots on the river. And I just wanted to comment around that. John, I appreciate the call from Brookings, South Dakota, hearing from you today on flyover down the Mississippi about how you interact with the Mississippi River and its tributaries, but also how you feel about whether your interests are considered, whether your voice is heard about the flow and the future of the Mississippi River. Join in 183-FLYOVER1. Tweet me at MPR. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio and stay with us tomorrow. Next conversation on Flyover, we're in Iowa City. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover Down the Mississippi, a conversation all week about different dimensions and aspects of the Mississippi River, this iconic river that is so important to the identity of Americans. Today, we're talking about who controls the flow and the future of the river. Roger Wolf is with us. He's director of environmental programs and services for the Iowa Soybean Association. And Carrie Jennings with us, research and policy director at Freshwater. I want to ask you both about something that President Trump has brought up. He is calling for less federal management and less oversight of the Mississippi and more private investment in it. And that sounds like withdrawing federal funding, carry and expecting states and municipal municipalities and other interest groups to step into that. Are you confident that there are resources there to step into a vacuum of of as much federal oversight of the river? In some states, there may be. In others, I'm sure there are not. And I think this is a recipe for um, self-interest kind of try, I was going to say, trumping the common good. Meaning meaning what? Um, you might locally put up levees to control flooding of, for example, in St. Paul, the airport downtown, mm-hmm. but that's going to create problems downstream. Water Moving water is such a hard problem because curing the problem on your parcel, you don't see the effect of that downstream. 
And I think federal regulation helps even all those approaches out. Roger, how about you? Withdrawing of more federal legislation and or federal oversight and stepping in more of municipalities and, and states. How does that sound to you? Well, here's my uh, perspective on it. Um, the Water is the ultimate local issue. Um, and we need to uh, take ownership of these issues. And so if you're going to drain the swamp, <laughs> so to speak, uh, and, and you're going to uh, reduce federal oversight and, and, and really give it to the states, um, then we need to own these issues. Um, w- one of the things that uh, we've looked at in Iowa is uh, we're talking 4 to $6 billion to meet our goals of the uh, Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy. And the reality is, is that there is not going to be enough state and federal money uh, to come in and 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 meet that uh, inf- infrastructure demand. So one of the things that we're beginning to advocate is is how do we bring in capital? And capital can uh, be paired up with uh, state and federal money uh, to be so that so that we know the public is getting a bang for the buck. We got to deploy um, capital to solve the problems that we're talking about. And so we're working real hard on on uh, trying to make those things happen. Phyllis says on Twitter, uh, thanks for another great discussion. Comments about cover crops drew me back to this article about Minnesota agriculture experiments and strategies. And I'll, re, uh, I'll retweet that article. There's some interesting reading there. Uh, Robert in St. Charles, Missouri called to say, it seems like there are a lot of different interests at play here, which which Robert is exactly why we're doing a week of conversations about this. He says people who want to preserve what's left of the natural Mississippi, people who see the river as a highway for shipping goods. Is there a middle ground to get those people on the same page? Carrie, what would you say? Trade-offs. There are going to be trade-offs. I mm. mean, this is a navigation system, as he points out. Um, Highly we, commercial. Commercial. We want to keep the native mussels and the ecology, um, it's hard to, and the core of engineers is actually being charged to do all of these things, um, stop invasive species while allowing the native species to thrive. These are really difficult problems, and that is where the policy comes in, is to help evaluate the trade-offs. Um, it's it's a challenge, and all the stakeholder voices do need to be heard. Call here from Jim in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hi, Jim. Thanks for waiting. Hey. Hey. We're 200 miles from the mouth of the river in Baton Rouge. New Orleans is 100 miles. Uh-huh. We're the last high ground in the state of Louisiana in this area. Mm. So I wanted to talk about the map of Louisiana. Good. We see the blue waters of the Gulf at the bottom and then we see this green stuff, which is swamp and marsh. You know, swamps and marshes are, are wetlands. They're not land. And there's been a lot of talk about coastal erosion, but there's never been any land there to erode. We, we, we have this subsidence problem, but the idea that we can solve our problems by you know, putting more sediment out of the Mississippi River into the marshes is never going to build land where there was no land before. And, and at the same time, the guys up in the Midwest, you know, they've been, they've been building dams and they've been doing other kinds of things that keep a lot of the sediment flow that used to come naturally down the river up in the Midwest. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's going to have to be a whole new paradigm to try to figure out how to deal with the coastal issues 
cutting off the flow of sediment out of the river into the marsh has hurt. But we're never going to be able to replace that. Jim, uh, Jim, I really hope you'll listen in when we get to New Orleans, because this is going to be a key part of the conversation about climate change. Carrie, you wanted to add. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is... This might be our next disaster. Maybe it's a slow-burning disaster. But Meaning this specifically. S- Slow-rising sea levels, right. subsidence of the delta, changing rainfall patterns in the upper Midwest. We're seeing the evolution of a new river system, and it's hurting at both ends. And this might be our opportunity to reevaluate what – this is our dust bowl, you know. Oh. Uh, to Ellis in New Orleans. Hi, Ellis. Thanks for calling in. Hello. Hi. All right. Thank you for having me. Sure. Okay. Uh, so uh, you're, the show, you're talking about um, the decision-making, the concerns, um, how decisions are made, individuals, corporate interests, and government. Right. Um, I live in New Orleans. Uh, I'm a half mile from the river itself. Uh, I'm a half mile as well from uh, the industrial canal that separates the upper from the lower ninth ward. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a 100-year-old bridge. Um, they're talking, the Army Corps has been talking about dredging it so that these giant ships can get from the river to the lake. Um, and they've had uh, question and answer sessions with people from the community. Um, and I just wonder about what their actual interests are. If they care about the community, because they're about to put a billion dollars into dredging this canal, mm-hmm. which would cut off the lower ninth ward from the rest of the city for at least 10 years, and uh, which would obviously affect the lives of the people that live in that neighborhood. So um, I think it's telling that, uh, the Army Corps hasn't uh, chosen to been on your show as of yet, and I hope that they would uh, comment at some point. So I appreciate the time, and I'll take your comments. Yeah, off. no, I really appreciate you raising that. Again, the Army Corps could not make the show. I should have said that uh, uh, repeatedly here through the hour. But we have issued an invitation to them for a town hall discussion that we're doing in La Rose, Louisiana, on Thursday night and that you will hear on Friday. So, um so we'll get that invitation out again. I really hope the Har- uh, Army Corps of Engineers will accept it. To Brenda in Knox, Iowa. Hi, Brenda. Hi. I live in Donaldson, Iowa. Yeah. And my name is Brenda Knox. And um, the Army Corps of Engineers and a patchwork of laws, including Iowa's eminent domain laws, uh, allowed a hazardous oil pipeline from the Bakken uh, area, mm-hmm. same one that Standing Rock fought against, to put a pipeline under the Mississippi River just north of Keokuk and south of Montrose, Iowa, in my home county of Lee County, Iowa. Uh-huh. Our family farm was also affected by the pipeline. And I'm what... just saying, um, excuse me, it's a very ill-thought decision uh, concerning the environment of the river. Do you feel, Brenda, that your objections and your concerns were considered closely enough as those decisions were being made? No, we felt like a patchwork of laws um, was just cobbled together to allow an industry uh, transporting hazardous crude oil to go through our land and under Mississippi River. I appreciate the call. Uh, Again, I think, Roger and Carrie, this lets us know how complicated different interests and different stakes are in the river up and down like as i said at the beginning of the show your one version of control writer policy looks chaotic and is counterproductive to somebody else on the river roger i've been curious about whether you think the the farmers that you interact with 
feel like enough of their own experience and their views carry the day? I mean, in Iowa, that's a powerful constituency, constituency but how do they feel? Um, well, I, you know, on one level, you have kind of the status quo system. And then on another level, you know, you have a group of people that are trying to be leaders and uh, trying to define their own future, you know, using science and technology and, and, and trying to be impactful. Um, uh, that's uh, certainly what motivates me and, and the group of farmers that I'm working for, um, that, that's been a big part of it. Um, and what we've tried to do, I mean, agriculture is a big industry um, and it's, it's privately held land and, um, you know, there, there is respect for private property. And, uh, at the same time, I, I think the government has to wrestle with, you know, the, the bigger common good question. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. I'm not elected to make that decision. Um, yeah, but you're a pretty it, big stakeholder who may, uh, get the results of a decision, the people that you represent who, and they're not very happy about it the decisions being made, right? That's right. I think, uh, I think I, I like to believe that, uh, the process works. Uh, I think there has to be, um, uh, values expressed on, on both, both sides of the equation. And we have to weigh these things out. Um, I'm a proponent of, of local action and, uh, making sure that we're uh, putting our money where our mouth is mm -hmm. and owning this, these issues and demonstrating results and accountability. And these are community issues. It isn't uh, agriculture without uh, downstream communities processing food. And, uh, you know, that's, that's also important. And, and so uh, right there on par with water. Um, so how do we do this together is what we try to advocate for. I, I think actually this call from William in Louisiana it speaks to what you were just saying here, Roger. He says the problem with regulation on the river is that there are so many exemptions for certain states or counties that any ordinances don't carry a lot of weight because they're not coming from a centralized governing body. It's all piecemeal. Now, Roger was saying he believes that local activism and local lawmaking is valuable. Carrie, what do you say about what William's bringing up here? Well, I can see the point in local control high in the watersheds. And yeah. I want to describe that to you. So okay. the smallest tributaries to the Mississippi. In Minnesota, we have a local special purpose unit of government. The watershed district crosses, you know, traditional government lines and communities and governments work together to solve the problems within their watersheds um, before they have a downstream impact. For example, here in the metropolitan area, the Mississippi Watershed Management Organization works on infiltrating water before it reaches the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that you can start to attack those problems locally if you have the appropriate structure. The problem is not having a local governance in place. Then I don't know if the efforts are going to be that um, targeted. Call from Luke in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hi, Luke. How you doing? Doing um, well. Glad you to... called. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. I wanted to touch on some of the policies that, um, some of the issues that other people have, have raised from Louisiana, Baton Rouge. You know, the bigger cities, Baton Rouge is 200 miles away from the coast. Mm -hmm. New Orleans is another 100 miles. Um, a lot of the policy issues that we have here are driven by 
you know, our two biggest industries, oil and gas and tourism. Other cities get to talk a lot more in, in state government. Um, a lot of the legislature is uh, influenced by those industries. So that's another thing I guess needs to be talked about also, you know, down um, in local areas. You know, so the, most of the jobs are in oil and gas, and these people who live on the coast and on the river, they do care about the environment. They, they're also looking out for their, their pocketbook. Right. So that's something else I wanted to say, um, let y'all know about more of the issues that happen here. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really good point, that when you come in and you talk about the economy and jobs, this is this is the delicate balance, Carrie, that, that has to be made all up and down the river, but particularly, I think, at the bottom in Louisiana. Uh, you can't come in with policies that are going to look counterproductive to job growth and economic growth because then you won't build support for those kinds of policies. How Go ahead and answer that, and then well, I want to ask you about how corporate interests play into I, that. I was going to use a Headwaters example okay. of um, the agricultural industry in the Minnesota River watershed Good. Um, gets their seed and fertilizer by barge on the Minnesota River mm-hmm. of the Mississippi, and then they deliver their crops the, the same way, downriver. So they rely on that river, and some of their current practices are actually making navigation difficult. They're making the river sediment in more quickly with sand primarily up here. And so I think it's just finding that intersection. And the other thing that's happening is the agricultural landscape requires fewer and fewer people to run the the large farms. Um, Fewer people want to be out in the landscape maybe because the rivers and lakes aren't fishable and swimmable anymore in that watershed. So there needs to be a balance um, in these industries. I want to grab a call here from Kaylin in Minneapolis. Hi, Kaylin. I've got just a couple minutes left. Wanted to hear about your experience with this, though. Hey there. Uh, thanks for having this whole conversation. Um, I'm up in Minneapolis and have been a kayak guide on the river for six years or so. <laughs> and that great. gives me an interesting perspective on I have to react to everything. I don't have much control, but I get to forecast sort of what is happening. And it seems like uh, for for those of us who work on the river, it's very clear that it's just starting to become more part of the consciousness of the city of, of people around here. And I'm just wondering how, how much Minneapolis, the watershed up here with the industrial port being shut down and, and these changes that we'll see here, how much that is going to be a sort of uh, laboratory for, for how the river changes in a post-industrial economy, um, assuming that that happens in other cities. Um, but, yeah, it seems it's very clear that people need to get on the river in order for there to be any change um, in, in terms of how how many how much money goes into changing and how that works. What do you think, Carrie? I have just a, about a minute and a half here. I, and that reflects what Jane, an earlier caller, said. Um, float it, fish it, fix it. I mean, if you acknowledge the river and are present in it, then you will be more inclined to put some money towards fixing it. That's when I know you listened yesterday. That's one of the things that came up again and again yesterday is if you have some kind of generational attachment to the river or you live at the edge of it or you're on it a lot, you feel like your state at stake is much more personal and intimate. Yeah, and I would I just really want to expand that beyond the river corridor itself and to every one of those minor tributaries. I like to ask people what their watershed address is because they live <laughs> okay. in this watershed and I'm 
west bank of Chubb Creek, tributary to the North Cannon, tributary to the Cannon, to the Mississippi, to the Gulf. More people ought to know their watershed address. Roger, do you know yours? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, (laughs) Beaver Creek, Johnston, Iowa. Nicely done. (laughs) Roger, really good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the perspective. Very good. Thank you. Carrie, thank you. You're welcome. You can continue to weigh in on the questions and the conversations that we're having here on Flyover Down the Mississippi. Tweet me anytime. Uh, hashtag Flyover Radio. It's at Carrie, K E R R I M P R. Flyover. Down the Mississippi River is produced by Minnesota Public Radio News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. It's a collaboration with The Water Main at American Public Media, helping Americans understand the value of water in our everyday lives.